The parable of the wedding feast. Who doesn't like an invitation to a party? Well, we all like to be invited, don't we? It, it makes us feel special. It makes us feel appreciated, valuable. And, and there is nothing more special than an invitation to a wedding of a close friend or family member. Well, we come again this morning to one of those parables of Jesus in which he seeks to take things that were formerly hidden, spiritual truth about the kingdom of God that had not previously been revealed, and then to make that truth plain to us by laying it alongside a very easy to understand earthly story which helps us to grasp the truth that was previously hidden. And so Jesus tells a parable about the kingdom of heaven being like a great king who had a wedding feast for his son. Now remember what I said last week, that the, the first group of parables that we're going to be looking at over the, a couple of weeks are the parables about how to enter the kingdom of God. And so this must be kept in mind as we come to this portion this morning, as Jesus is teaching us a spiritual truth about how we are to enter into his kingdom. Now, you may be tempted to switch off at this point because you might feel, well, you know, I'm already in. Uh, after all, Clinton, I'm, I'm a member at Honey Ridge. I've attended the church for years. Do I really need to listen to a message about entering the kingdom of God? And my answer to that question would be absolutely. Firstly, because the scriptures call on us on many occasions to examine ourselves to see if we really are in the faith. And so it's good that we consider this parable this morning to, to really examine if we are in the kingdom of God, no matter how involved we may be within the local church. And so that will be good for us to do this morning. But we also need, as Christians, those of us who are in the kingdom of God, to constantly be reminded and equipped to share this good news of the kingdom with others others who are outside the kingdom of God. And, and how can you explain the good news of salvation to others, the way of salvation, point them to the king of this spiritual kingdom, if you don't really understand and grasp the truths which Jesus is wanting us to learn from this parable? So if you're out this parable is about getting in. And if you're in, this parable is about helping you to know how you can reach those who are out. We must also remember that the use of parables, as, as Jesus taught them, was meant to filter and divide between those who believe and those who do not, between those who are in and those who are out. And so this parable will bring that division, that contrast out in a, in a very striking way. So let's start this morning by firstly considering the main characters of this parable. Let's see them in verse 2 and 3. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. So there we have it. We have the, the four characters or four main groups of characters given to us in those two verses. We have a king, we have his son, we have those who are invited to the wedding feast, and we have the servants who go out and do the inviting. 
Now, the context of this parable is key to understanding its meaning. Just glance back in your Bibles at the previous verses in Matthew chapter 21 from about verse 23 uh, towards the end, where you will see that Jesus is speaking to the, the chief uh, priests, the, the elders and the Pharisees of Israel. And he explained to them as Jews, as the religious elite of the day, that they had rejected God. They had rejected the prophets of God, and finally they had rejected the very Son of God, namely Jesus himself. And so, as a result, Jesus says to them in verse 43, chapter 21, verse 43, Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. This ties us back to the parable of the sower last week. It will be taken away from those who are hard or those who are smothered or those who are superficial and it will be given to those who produce fruit. Then verse 45 says, And the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables and they perceived that he was speaking about them. And so then immediately following that, Jesus comes on to chapter 22 and he tells them this parable about a king and his son and those invited and the servants. And they knew exactly what Jesus was speaking about. Because from the Old Testament background, from the Old Testament context into which Jesus was speaking, there was no doubt or confusion in their minds as to who these four characters or four groups of characters represented. From the, the Old Testament scriptures, it is clear that the king in the story is none other than God the Father. The son is the Lord Jesus Christ. The servants of the king who are sent out to do the inviting, they are the prophets of the Old Testament. They were the ones who were sent out to call the people to repentance, to call the people to come and await the arrival of the Messiah. And then those who are invited in this parable are clearly the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. But did you notice that as we read the parable, that one character is missing? Who do you notice is missing in this parable of the wedding feast? Well, of course, there is no bride. There's no bride in the parable. Why is that? What kind of a wedding feast is it if there's no bride? Well, here's a, a, another hidden reality which the hearers of, of this parable in Jesus' time would not have fully understood yet, but which we can now understand in the, the full light or the completed revelation of God in both the Old and the New Testament. There is no bride mentioned because those who accept and respond to the invitation and the call of the king, once this wedding banquet hall has been filled, they are the ones who become the bride. Now, how do we know this? Well, already back in Isaiah chapter 54 verse 5, we, we see this language being used of the people of God. Isaiah 54 verse 5 says, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. The Lord, your maker, is your husband. 
this language of, of a groom and a bride, a marriage. And then Ephesians chapter 5, the New Testament picks up on this and says that husbands must love their wives just as Christ loved the church. The marriage relationship between Christ and the church is a spiritual reality which our earthly marriages are meant to be a picture of, meant to point to. And then again, at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John reveals to us one of the secrets that will take place when we get to heaven one day. And he says in Revelation 19 verse 6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, Bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So with, with that historical and broader theological context in mind, let us then move on to consider what this parable teaches us. And in the first place, I want us to see the call of the gospel in verse 8. Sorry, verses 1 to 8. Now, verses 1 to 8 are primarily to be understood in the specific historical context of Jesus speaking to the Jews, particularly speaking to the, 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 the elders, the, the, the priests, and the Pharisees, who had, for the most part, totally rejected Jesus, rejected his teaching, and yet we nevertheless see that the truths about the call of the gospel continue for all time and all generations. And so we learn a number of things about this call of the gospel. In the first place, we see that the call of the gospel is proactive. Verse 2 and 3. Who is giving out this feast or, or hosting this feast? It's God. Who is inviting the guests? It's God. Who is sending out the servants to fetch the guests? It's God. You see, the message of Christianity is unlike any other religion. David Platt, in his book Radical, speaks of the difference like this. He says that every other religion views God at the top of the mountain, and it is our choice and our effort to figure out a way up the mountain in order to get to God. But Christianity is entirely different because in Christianity, God comes down from the mountain to where we are at. He becomes one of us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And so we see that this call of the gospel is, is proactive. God, in his love, takes the initiative. He, he came down into the Garden of Eden to meet with Adam and Eve even after they had sinned. And he continues to come down to us in our sin in order to call us to himself. Secondly, we see that the call of the gospel is also persistent in verse 4. We see that those in verse 3 who were invited and called, they refuse to come. They reject the king's invitation. They ignore his call. What an incredible insult and yet we see that the king, representing God, is persistent in his call. He sends out his servants, 
again. And I don't think we are meant to deduce from this that, that God only calls twice. But what we see here is that God is persistent in his calling of people to come and enter into his kingdom. He keeps calling until it becomes evident that his call is finally rejected. We will see that in a moment. But for now, it's important to see that that God keeps on calling out to those who were invited to come into the feast. Then thirdly, we see that the call of the gospel is persuasive. We see this also in verse 4. Notice that when the the king's offer is rejected the first time, he doesn't send out soldiers to to force them to come in. He doesn't send out the police to, to command them to come in. He sends out his servants as ambassadors to persuade, to plead with those who were invited. Look at verse 4. Look at the patient compassion and desire of the king here. He says, tell those who are invited, look, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and, and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. The implication is everything is ready for you. So come to the wedding feast. The call of the gospel is persuasive. It's it's not a message of of fear and condemnation. It's one of God pleading with those who've been invited to consider the great cost which, which the king, which God has gone to in preparing this great feast and what abundant blessing awaits those who accept the invitation. And then in the fourth place, we see that this call of the gospel is also passing in verses 5 to 8. What we see here is that although the king is proactive and persistent and persuasive, there comes a time when the invitation to, to the feast is continuously rejected so that the king removes his invitation and sends judgment in its place. Now, the topic of God's judgment is not popular today and, and we can almost feel embarrassed as, as modern day Christians about verses like verse 7 where it says the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. But I want you to know this morning that this is no idle threat. This is what God actually did. When the Jews rejected Christ and crucified him, and even after Pentecost, when they continued to resist the preaching of the word of God, eventually God hands them over to judgment. And these words of Jesus are fulfilled literally in AD 70, when the Roman government plundered Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. But it's also worth noticing the reasons for the king's ultimate judgment. Look at verse 5. Notice the response of the people to God, which eventually brought out his judgment. Some were simply indifferent to the call. They simply ignored the call of the gospel. This one went off to his farm. That one went off to his business. They were simply disinterested in the things of God. They looked after their own affairs rather than the kingdom of God. But there were others who responded in a very hostile way. 
They were defiant to the king. They rejected his servants. They persecuted them. They treated them shamefully. They even put some of them to death. But notice that the king's anger burned against both groups, both responses. Those who politely, respectfully ignored the king with a, not now thanks, I'm busy, I'll I'll get to it in the future. As well as those who who shook their fist at God and, and told him to get lost. The end result was the same. They were destroyed and their city was burned. So the invitation of the king is passing. It's for a season And neither you nor I know when the patience of the king will run out. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 tells us that the Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that you should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But equally we are told in Hebrews that today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion as the people of old did, so that they were unable to enter into God's rest due to unbelief. Ultimately, this prophetic word of Jesus that God will will judge those who reject his invitation will find its ultimate fulfillment at the final day of judgment, when all those who have rejected Christ, both the living and the dead, will be destroyed and will be thrown into the city of hell where the fire never stops burning. And so this is the call of the gospel. It's a loving call. It's a proactive call. It's a persuasive call. And it's a patiently persistent call. But ultimately, it is a call which will pass away. And today is the day that you are being called to respond to this invitation. For who knows whether tomorrow might be too late. The second thing which this parable teaches us this morning is that the gospel is a celebration. And I want us to consider the celebration of the gospel in verses 9 and 10. Go therefore, says the king, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And so the servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now here we can see a couple things about the nature of the gospel being a celebration. Something that is to be enjoyed and delighted in. And firstly, we see that it is a wedding feast. Verse 9, I mean we've seen this already. It's a wedding feast for the son of the king. And we are invited to not just attend this feast, but to become part of the bride. What an awesome privilege, what an awesome joy, what a reason to celebrate. But how different is the world's view of Christianity and and Christians? The world thinks that to become a Christian is to become a party pooper, a killjoy, a morbid depressive, uh, someone who just exists while obeying a long list of, of rules and regulations until you die. What a sad picture which could not be further from the truth. 
What we have before us is Jesus, the Son of God, coming down from the mountain, so to speak. And he comes to tell us what it's like on top of the mountain. He tells us that there is a, a kingdom of God in heaven. It's a celebration. It's a wedding feast. And we are invited to, to enter. As the bride and the groom are joined together in this great wedding feast of the Lamb. Secondly, we, we see that the gospel is a celebration because this invitation to the wedding feast is open to all in verse 9 and 10. Let me ask you this. Do you think that Cinderella got excited and, and was all happy when she heard that there would be a great ball in the palace and, and the royal prince would be there to look for a bride? Of course she was not excited at first because Cinderella was not invited. The celebration of heaven and, and being part of the great kingdom of God would actually be a cause for sadness and depression for you and me if we heard about it but knew that we were not invited. But this is not what Jesus says here. In verse 9 and 10, he sends out his servants into the cities, to the crossroads, to the busy town square where all the roads meet, a, a little bit like the, the intersection of Bayes, Nordea and Zanspreit on payday. And he tells his servants, go, go out and invite as many as you can find. The gospel is a celebration because it is open to all. The capacity of this banquet, this wedding feast is, is unlimited. The king invites all to come and be part of this great celebration. And thirdly, the, the gospel is a celebration because the invitation and this, the call is undeserved. Look at verse 10. The servants went out and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. Did you see that? There is no prerequisite standard for acceptance into this feast. There's no church membership required. There's no historical track record of, of good behavior required. There's, there's no religious effort required. The servants invite all those whom they found both bad and good. And the Greek word here for bad means those who are morally corrupt, those who are immoral, wicked, evil. And the word for good does not mean sinless or or morally perfect, but one who has positive moral qualities in a, in a general kind of way, what we would call a, a nice person. The point is that the gospel is a celebration because it does not make any distinction as to those who are invited. You don't have to deserve an invitation. You don't have to be suitably qualified to be invited. You don't have to be born on the right side of the railway track to receive an invitation. No, the, the call to, to come in is given on the basis of the grace and the mercy of the king. And it's not based on anything in the person being invited. And then fourthly, the wedding feast and the gospel is a celebration because it is full in verse 10. The verse ends and says, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. What a wonderful picture, a picture so different to, to many people's view of, of what it means to be a Christian and to go to heaven. The wedding hall, Jesus says, will be full. 
The new heavens and the new earth will not be sparsely populated with a few weird people who needed Christianity as a crutch. Oh no, the new heavens and the new earth will be filled with a multitude of people from every language and tribe and tongue, from all ages past and all ages yet to come, people who live and move and breathe in the presence of the King, worshipping Him, working for Him, resting in Him. It will be an eternal celebration of the greatest feast this universe could ever know. And so the question is this, will you be there? Will you be there? Are you looking forward to being there? Are you already celebrating that you are part of that great invitation? Have you accepted the call? Are you already a member of the wedding feast in its embryonic form here on earth in the local church? We are meant to be, as Honey Ridge Baptist Church, we are meant to be a small shadow, a small picture of this great wedding feast of the Lamb. Are you part of that? And are you living every day with a constant anticipation of the great consummation of the wedding feast of the Lamb? Well, we've seen something of the call of the gospel, and we've seen something of the celebration of the gospel But in the final place this morning, I want us to see the covering of the gospel in verses 11 to 14. Verse 11 says, But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now this is probably the the most difficult part of the parable to, to interpret, but it is also the most important part of the parable to understand correctly because it explains what is needed for us to enter into the kingdom of God. We've seen that to enter, we need to not only accept the invitation in our minds and kind of mentally ascribe positively to the idea of the invitation, a kind of a a, a mental RSVP, But no, we have to actually yield to the call of the invitation to come. It requires action. It requires response on our part to respond to this invitation. But what we need to notice is that the invitation and the call are given to both good and bad people. In other words, ethnicity, moral history, social standing and background... None of these things mean anything because the invitation is open to all. It's, it's undeserved. It's a free gift which has been extended to us. So that's all wonderful. But that's not the full picture. Because Jesus goes on to tell us that the king finds someone in the context of the feast who was not wearing a wedding garment. Now what's that all about? Well, in those days, as it is today, quite similar, when you get invited to a wedding, you put on your best clothes. Even today, still, a wedding is one of those few events on our social calendars when we dress up and we look smart. Now, why is that? 
Well, it shows respect for the bride and the groom. They've gone to great trouble. They've gone to great cost to put this event together. They are dressed beautifully for each other and dressed beautifully for you as the guest. And so you don't arrive at the wedding in your work clothes, all soiled and, and muddied after a day's work. No, you, you clean up and you dress nice. And we must not miss here from the parable is that all those invited were brought in from where? They were brought in from the city streets. None of them was invited and then given a chance to first go home to prepare, to, to take a shower, to clean up, and then to, to get their wedding garments ready. No. Those who arrive at the wedding, both good and bad, would not have been prepared for a wedding feast. None of them would have had their own wedding garments. They would have arrived in their dirty work clothes. So what we learn from this is that the king himself provides a wedding garment for each of the guests. And it seems that everyone had a garment on except this one chap. And his response to the king's question is very telling. The king asks him how he got in without a garment. Because the king had provided garments for all his guests. So, so what's going on here? How is it that this chap was at the feast but without a garment? And Jesus says that he was speechless. He knew that he had been found out. His offense was serious because the king orders the attendants to, to come and bind him hand and foot and to cast him into outer darkness. And so something much bigger is going on here than simply being appropriately dressed. Let's try and unpack the, the spiritual truth which Jesus uh, is trying to teach here. And the principle of Biblical interpretation is always to go to other passages of Scripture which shed light on the subject. And so let's turn to Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. The book of Isaiah is a book that uh, the Jews of Jesus' day knew well. And in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, we read this. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. And here it is, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So here we see that this idea of being clothed with the garments of salvation is that the Lord covers his people in a robe of righteousness. I, I so badly want to, to jump straight to Jesus here, but we'll get there. Let's not too, be too hasty. Let's go to one more Old Testament reference, which I think helps to explain why this account of the chap without a wedding garment is so serious. So turn with me to the, the prophecy of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 3 uh, and verse 1 to 5. Zechariah 3 and verse one to five. Zechariah writes and he says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, 
The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this, pointing to Joshua, a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. What an incredible insight into the the inner throne room of heaven to see that even Joshua the high priest, supposedly the most righteous of all of God's servants from a human perspective, is like a brand plucked from the fire and he stands before God in the filthiness of his own sin. And God steps in and silences the great accuser of our souls, Satan himself, and rebukes him for bringing his accusations against Joshua. Why is that? Because as we see, his sins have been paid for. His guilt has been removed, and he has been clothed in the rich garments of righteousness. And the angel of the Lord, a clear reference to the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, was standing by. Why is that significant? Because what was taking place in this vision of Zechariah was going to be made a reality in time and space when the angel of the Lord became a man and lived a perfect life of righteousness and then went to the cross to die in our place. He wore on the cross, Jesus wore the filthy garments of Joshua's sin. Jesus wore the filthy garments of your sin and mine. And he bore the full wrath of God against his own son for our sins. And then we, in return for trusting in him, not only have our sins removed, nailed to the cross, but we are then clothed in the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ so that forever and eternity our accuser Satan will be silenced before the throne of God. We sometimes sing that song, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain and he washed it white as snow. What we find in these last verses of the parable is a person who thought that he could get into heaven on his own terms. A person who thought his garments were good enough. A person who thought that the shiny jewels that he was wearing of good deeds would outweigh the dirty stains of filth on his clothes. But the king has him bound and cast out. Jesus said in John 10 verse 1, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. This man is the kind of man who thinks that he will be accepted by God on his terms. 
based on his efforts, based on his righteous, religious performance. But the reality is that he stood out like a sore thumb in the presence of God. Among all the guests who were clothed in the spotless robes of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, this man with his robes of earthly good works, his robes of of self-righteousness, reeked with the stench of the filth of his pride and sin. And so when he's confronted by the king, he was speechless and he was thrown out into eternal darkness. You see, the gospel provides a covering, a covering for our shame, a covering for our guilt, a covering for our sins, but it's, it's not a covering which hides the reality of, of who we really are. No, it's a covering which first strips us naked of all that is sinful and sick, and it is a covering which clothes us in the very person of Jesus Christ himself. Galatians 3.27 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. Jesus is our covering. He is our wedding garment. Whoever we are, as good or bad as our lives may have been up to this point, He alone is good enough to strip us of our filthy robes and to clothe us in his perfect righteousness. You see, this invitation to the wedding feast is an incredible act of God's grace. It's totally undeserved. It's initiated by his love and it's offered freely to all. But just because it is free does not mean that it did not cost anything. No, there could not have been a greater cost ever paid than what Jesus Christ paid for in order to make it free. For God so loved the world. How so? That he gave us his only son. He gave us his son to to die on a cross, to take upon himself your sin and mine, to drink the very last drop of God's wrath against us for our sin, so that we who believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Each one of us this morning has been invited to this wedding feast of the Son of God. And the call, the call to you is going out as I speak today. It's open to everyone, no matter how good or bad you think you are. No matter how beyond redemption you may think you are, or no matter how above redemption you think you may be. You are being called today to come to the bridegroom himself. He, that is Jesus, is standing at the door ready to clothe you in the most precious, costly garment ever purchased. The garment of the righteousness of Jesus himself, which came at the cost of his own life so that you will not have to be bound and cast out into darkness for all eternity, but you can be brought in and enjoy the celebration as the bride of Christ for all eternity. And so as I close, we cannot avoid the the final statement of Jesus this morning. Look at verse 14. Jesus ends this parable with the words, Many are called, but few are chosen. 
Do you see that, that everything about this celebration is centered on God? It's His Son who's getting married. He's the one who invites. He's the one who calls. He's the one who provides the wedding garment. And ultimately, He's the one who chooses who will respond. Many are called, but few are chosen. Now, if that statement worries you this morning, if that worries you that you may not be chosen, that's good. That's good. Run to Jesus. Plead with Him to choose you. Because He promises that all who come to Him, He will never turn away. You cannot save yourself. You cannot choose Christ unless He first chooses you. But the fact that you are here today, the fact that you've logged on to YouTube and are watching this video, is the fact that you are being called. And the fact that your heart is, is deeply concerned about your eternal future is the evidence that God is at work in your life. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. As the people of old did so that they were unable to enter God's rest due to their unbelief. Won't you run to Jesus Christ today? Won't you accept the call of His invitation? Do not let go of Him until He clothes you in His righteousness and welcomes you in to His eternal wedding feast. How much do you want this? What are you willing to give up to get this that we've looked at today? Are you willing to give up boyfriend or girlfriend to get Jesus? Are you willing to give up your secret life of sexual immorality to get Jesus? Are you willing to, to give up that promotion or, or popularity in order to get Jesus? Are you prepared to be stripped naked so that you can be clothed with Jesus? Let me close with the words of the Apostle Paul, who had everything this world could offer, and he gave it all up to get Jesus. Paul says in Philippians 3 verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish, as dung, in order that I might gain Christ. Be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him that I may know the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. How much do you want Jesus? Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you as the great King, the great king in our parable who has prepared this incredible wedding feast of the Lamb, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and who has invited us, who's called us, who's patiently and persistently and persuasively 
drawn us in to become part of the bride of Christ. And so, Lord, we want to come before you today and ask for your forgiveness for having brushed off that invitation perhaps many, many times in the past. Forgive us today, Lord, even those of us who are Christians, for taking this invitation so lightly, for thinking that somehow we were chosen, we were called to be part of this bride of Christ because of something in us, not recognizing that were it not for the Lord Jesus Christ, were it not for your grace, were it not for him clothing us in our righteousness, we would be found speechless and would have been bound and thrown out into outer darkness. Oh Lord God, we want to thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ, for the, the, the good news revealed in this parable of, of the wonders of what you are doing in salvation history. That we would... Come running to you today, running afresh to you, crying out, I am unworthy, but clothe me, clothe me in your righteousness and bring me into your presence for all eternity. Oh Lord, forgive us for so easily chasing after the, the garments of this world, the garments of social media, of, of fake superficial garments of being liked and having followers. Help us to see that it will all come up wanting in the presence of a holy God one day. And so we are to let go of these things of the world, to find our true identity, our true purpose, our true community in being known by the Lord Jesus Christ as we come to know him as our Lord and Savior. Again, Lord, what we ask of you today is something that only you can do. We have a responsibility to respond we pray that you would grant us that gift of repentance and that gift of faith, that we would turn to you now, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.